two years ago, I had an interview with a friend of mine who used to be the branch manager of one of these tier one Canadian banks. And what she revealed to me was that she had a quota. Every month she needed to sell X amount of product A, X amount of product B, and that she needed to get her clients on different types of products that were offered by the bank. And she and her performance was tied to the sales of these products. And it wasn't surprising to me to hear this, but I think it may be surprising to most listeners of this podcast to hear that these bank managers, advisors, um, managers at these financial institutions have an interest to protect. And trust me, the interest is not yours. It's the bank's interest. And so all of these advisors who work at these financial institutions, and I'm referring to banks here right now, but it could be any financial institution, that the standard on which some of these operate is a suitability standard, not a best interest standard. So this friend of mine who revealed that she had to sell X amount of credit cards or she had to open X amount of line of credit. While it is suitable for her clients, it was not in her client's best interest, but she had to do it because there was a quota. Now you've never heard that interview because that interview was never published. And now this podcast has been going on for two and a half years and you've never heard that interview. That friend of mine was sharing with me her mea culpa, but unfortunately the audience will not be able to hear that interview now. It just so happened today that I had a lunch with another friend of mine who now works in the pharmaceutical industry, but he revealed to me that he used to work in the finance industry, even though he's a PhD in biochemistry and and holds an MBA. And the first sentence he said to me was, Vu, in the industry, 25% of all advisors operate with their own best interests at mind, not ones of the client. So here's a question for the audience. Do you know if you are dealing with one of these 25% advisors? Are the products that you are buying suitable or are they of best interest? How do you know which one do you have? How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. In our last podcast, we had a let's say definition episode of what best interest versus suitability is. It was a very academic and I would also call it diplomatic discussion between the difference 
between suitability and best interest and fiduciary duty. In this podcast, I'm going to be less diplomatic. And in fact, this is my own opinion. And so it will not be as diplomatic. While I want to give my opinion, I don't want to offend. And so please, the intent is not to offend, but to educate as well. And so for those of you who listen to this podcast and feel offended, I apologize that you feel that way, but it's really not the intent. It's really to make sure that my audience, my colleagues, my peers, my doctors, my nurses, my dentist colleagues, all are aware of this so that they can make better financial decisions. That is really the point of why I'm doing this particular podcast. To illustrate my points, I'm going to give you three medical scenarios. And doctors and nurses, you will understand these scenarios really, really easily. So the first scenario is that of a family doctor. So I'm a family doctor and I see patients who come in with atrial fibrillation. And I would start them on a discussion of what atrial fibrillation is and how we treat it and what are the things that we are looking for and how do we prevent complications. Inevitably, I will be using the CHADS VAS score or the CHAD score or even the CHADS 2 to determine whether my patient needs anticoagulation or not. And once I've engaged into that discussion, inevitably I will be talking about warfarin. I will be talking about apixaban. I will be talking about edoxaban or even rivaroxaban. And as I'm talking about these medications, I'm going through the list of the pros of why I'm doing it, the complications and the cons of why I'm doing it. And if the patient does not want any of it, then I need to discuss what happens if the patient does not take anticoagulation. What is the risk of doing nothing? Or I also have to discuss what are the alternatives if they do not want to take an anticoagulant. Is aspirin a good choice? Is clopidogrel a good choice? And so I must have this discussion with my patient to the pros and the cons of anything that I suggest. Should they decide not to take it? What are the potential risks? And if they decide not to take it, what are the other options and alternatives and how good are they in comparison to the anticoagulation? You understand that as a medical practitioner and provider, I have to give these information so that the patient can make an informed consent. And notice that I have to talk about everything that is available according to science and literature whether I am endorsing warfarin, endorsing any of these new anticoagulants. And I must also talk about alternatives and what happens if they do nothing, which means that I have to provide information about things that I will not even recommend. And that is how my patient is comfortable knowing that they are making the most educated decision possible.
So for those of you who practice primary care, I'm sure you can relate to this example extremely easily. My second example comes from my practice in the emergency department. So patients come in with an acute thunderclap headache that started this morning. And I'm thinking about a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So I must go through the discussion of my workup with the patient as we're doing the CT scan. And once the CT scans comes back, and let's assume that it is past beyond the six hour window that I can make a diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage on a CT scan without performing an LP, I'm not in that scenario. I am now referring in the scenario where I must go on to do the LP, the lumbar puncture. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a lumbar puncture before, but I have to tell you, while it's very pleasant to perform one, it's not very pleasant to receive one. And so I can definitely understand the patients not wanting one. And so if they don't want one and they don't want to go through that procedure, then it is my role, my responsibility, ethically and professionally, to discuss all the other options possible. What is the pros of not doing a lumbar puncture? What are the cons of not doing a lumbar puncture? And if we decide not to do a lumbar puncture, what other options exist? And what are the pros and cons of those options? And all that have to be laid out on the table for the patient to make an educated decision. The third example also comes from my emergency practice, but it comes from the specialist's perspective. So let's assume I diagnose an appendicitis in my patient and I've referred the patient to the surgeon. The surgeon inevitably will have that discussion with the patient about surgery and what are the options for the acute appendicitis. One of them is obviously surgical. Another one would be treatment with antibiotic. And a third one will most likely involve a wait and see type of approach. But again, I'm not a surgeon, so I'm not sure how realistic that third approach will be. But I can tell you that at least from the literature, there is an option to take oral antibiotics and defervest the acute appendicitis and hope that it gets better. In fact, this, this approach have reduced the rate of surgery by about 30%. So for the patient, the discussion revolves around the pros and cons of surgery, the pros and cons of oral antibiotics, and also options of doing nothing, and also options. Maybe there's a fourth option that I'm not even aware of. But the point that I want to make is that the surgeon knows about all these options and all are presented on the table for the patient to consider, even though 
the surgeon may recommend acute surgery. And so therefore, in the practice of medicine, what we really want is informed consent and educated decision. And we pride ourselves on having the knowledge, having to communicate this knowledge, and helping our patients make the best educated decision possible. That is how we function in medicine. However, I can tell you that that's now things function in the financial industry. And you already know this. And that is why I had the discussion about suitability versus best interests. In medicine, we abide by the Hippocratic Oath and we abide by the standard of best interest. Unfortunately, in the financial industry, many still abide by the standard of suitability. We've talked a lot about that in our last episode and mainly using hypothetical examples. But here, I'm going to talk about something else and I'm going to use very concrete examples. And I would like you, the audience, to reflect on your own journey and your own experience and figure out whether you have been provided the standard of suitability or the standard of best interest when it comes to financial vehicles and solutions as provided by not only your financial advisor, but also your accountant. I am certain that many of you have heard of this saying, it is not what is said that is important. It is what is not said that is the most important. And the reason why that is important is because you and I do not know what we don't know. And until someone brings it up to us and make it conscious for us, how do we know that the thing that we don't know is actually important to us? And that is why when we give consent or when we try to get consent, we talk about the pros, we talk about the cons, we talk about the alternatives and the pros and cons of the alternatives. And if we did not talk about that, would our informed consent be actually be informed? And will our consent actually be an educated consent? The answer is obviously no. If we haven't talked about things that the patient does not know about, how can the patient be aware of things that they were not aware of? And how could it be informed when they have not been informed of alternatives and their pros and cons? So how does this apply to you and your own personal finances? Let's take one example. In speaking to a lot of my colleagues and friends, many of us are still high MER mutual funds. And when I speak to them about how they plan their financial journey and their investments, they all have some sort of advisor, whether it's an advisor from the bank, whether it's an advisor from a financial institution, whether it's from their accountant. The question is, they all have someone 
that advises them on XYZ mutual funds. And my question is this, if these are high MER mutual funds, how come no one has spoken to them about index funds and ETFs that come with most likely very, very similar type of stock holdings, but with very, very low MERs. So the question is, all these colleagues of mine and friend of mine who are still using mutual funds and have an advisor, are these advisors using the standard of suitability or are they using the standard of best interest? Now, this being said, there may be a reason why they are on certain mutual funds and it has to make sense even with the high MER. Unfortunately, many of my colleagues do not understand why they are still in high MER mutual funds. Another example of suitability versus best interests is in the discussion of incorporation. As you know, physicians have the capability to incorporate into a professional practice, which comes with many, many tax efficiencies. Now, a lot of my colleagues have been told by their accountants not to incorporate. And the reason is because my colleagues don't have enough retained earnings in the corporation at the end of the year to make it financially worthwhile. So that is a question of philosophy, isn't it? Or is it? Now the question is, what are the pros and cons of incorporation? What are the pros and cons of non-incorporation? And what are the opportunity cost of not incorporating? And I will let you know a few of them. For example, if you bought a term life policy or even a whole life policy inside your corporation, you're paying with more dollars or more cents on the dollar than if you purchased them on your own in the personal name. Now, the discussion is not whether you're pro-term insurance or pro-whole life insurance. The discussion is whether you want to buy the life insurance inside the corporation or the insurance outside of the corporation. But if one does not have a corporation, then one has no capability of buying insurance inside a corporation. Even individuals who take every single dollar out to pay for their life expenses, these individuals may still have a need for life insurance. And so does the cost savings from buying the life insurance inside the corporation worth getting the corporation itself? Most of the time, the answer is yes, but it does not stop there. By not having a corporation, one foregoes the opportunity of a pension. So whether we are talking about a individual pension plan, IPP, a personal pension plan, PPP, 
or even the Canadian Physicians' Pension Plan, the CPPP. If one does not set up a corporation, one cannot take advantage of pension plans, and one is only limited to the RRSP. So here's the issue. The issue is the accountants who've been telling their clients to not incorporate because it is not worth it to pay for the double filing and to pay for the legal fees of the incorporation. I think what they are forgetting is that by not incorporating, they are foregoing the opportunities of being able to purchase life insurance inside the corporation. They're foregoing the opportunity of creating a pension as early as possible to create the pension and DB room. And also they're foregoing the opportunity of setting up a retirement compensation arrangement, also known as a RCA. So my colleagues who have accountants, because 100% of us have accountants, 99% of my colleagues do not know what an IPP, what a PPP, what a CPPP, what a corporately owned life insurance, and does not know what an RCA is. And so the question I have for these individuals is, what are you foregoing for not incorporating? And unfortunately, they don't know what they don't know. So the question is, did the accountant explain to them the pros and cons of what they are suggesting? And also, did they explain the pros and cons of things that they are not suggesting, i.e. incorporating? And did my colleague actually made an informed consent if they didn't even know that there was a possibility of a pension, the possibility of a corporately owned insurance, and the possibility of an RCA. In many of these examples, it is not what is said, i.e. not to incorporate, that is the most important. The most important is what is not said. What are the things that you will be foregoing if you do not incorporate? Unfortunately, I still see a lot of my colleagues who are not incorporated but who are also not aware of all the concept I just raised. So, as you can see, what is not said is actually very important. And the question is, did they have informed consent or did they make an educated decision? Was this not supposed to be the work and the job and the responsibility of their accountants? So did their accountants meet the suitability standard or did their accountants meet the best interest standard. I am not here to say negative things about the accountants, and I don't want to say that all accountants are alike, like no physicians are alike. There are obviously very good physicians, and there are obviously average physicians, and there are also sub-average physicians. It, in, it exists in all industry. So there are really, really good accountants, as you will hear in my upcoming 
podcasts with uh, a CPA, and there are average accountants, and there are also sub-average accountants. So I'm not here to paint all accountants with one general brush. I am going to, however, give you two examples of two accountants that I believe did really not do the job of best interest for their clients. My first story is from an accountant that I met about two and a half years ago. So I'm doing financial coaching for a physician colleague. And I explained to this physician colleague that I will come and speak to them about the financial orders of operation and how to build financial foundation. Topics among this particular category of building a foundation is the topic of life insurance, term life insurance, participating life insurance, and universal life insurance. And my colleague insisted of having his accountant present while I'm doing the coaching on the financial orders of operation. And as I started talking about the different types of insurance, and I was talking about the pros and cons of term life insurance and the pros and cons of whole life insurance, the accountant immediately interfered and interrupted and saying, we should not be talking about whole life insurance and there's nothing to talk about and it's a waste of time. As you can see, this particular accountant had very ideological beliefs about what whole life could do and not do. And unfortunately, even before I finish my explanation and education about whole life insurance and what are the potential benefits and drawbacks of this type of life insurance, I was stopped dead in my tracks. And so I was unable to provide that education to my colleague. So here's the question. If my colleague did not get proper education on the different types of life insurance, how can she make an educated decision? At best, she can make a decision that is influenced and biased by one school of thought, the school of thought from the accountant. So I question myself, did my colleague actually make an informed decision? And the answer is no, because this particular accountant was not willing to have that dialogue. And so in my mind, that particular accountant did not work in the patient, in the client's best interest. My second story is from a more recent encounter with another accountant. And this accountant was so-called accountant for professionals, physicians, and dentists. And as we were talking about the pros and cons of a pension plan for professionals, physicians, and dentists, it became very quickly apparent that the accountant wanted to know nothing about what we were talking about, defined benefit pensions. And as I sat there and asked him, why would he not want to learn about this? His answer to me was this and very simple. If I tell my clients that this exists 
and they actually want it. It makes my life complicated. And if they do get it, and at some point they have an issue, they will come back to me because I proposed it. And therefore, I'm not ready to do that. Even though all we were asking was the accountant to learn about defined benefit pensions, which physicians have been yearning for for many, many years. This brings me to the topic of capital stripping. Now, I am certain that many of you and your colleagues have heard from your accountants and have been recommended to do capital stripping to deal with the potential capital gains tax that can happen from all the assets that were invested inside the corporation from the retained earnings. And many of your colleague and my colleagues have been incorporated since its early years and have saved enough money and retained earnings in the corporation to invest into the market, which we call passive investment. And there will be a day when those investments need to be sold and trigger a capital gains tax. Accountants currently are recommending their clients to strip because of the feared inclusion rate on the capital gains tax should the Liberal government currently in power raise the inclusion rate. And so therefore, their only recommendation to their physician clients is to capital strip. But other than capital stripping, what other alternative exist? I wonder if those accountants have proposed alternatives the same way surgeons propose alternatives to surgery, for example, using antibiotics. What are the pros and cons? And I'm asking this question because I know that there's another solution. It is called the defined benefit plan. And so if accountants are not willing to learn about pension programs for physicians and how the defined benefit program and how terminal funding can help neutralize that capital gains tax through the capital stripping, how can they recommend and propose alternatives if they themselves are not aware of it? And they have told me that they did not want to hear about it or learn about it. And if that's the case, are they operating on a best interest standard for their clients? This seems like a rhetorical question, but I trust you it is not. Accountants are regulated professionals and they must act with the fiduciary duty in mind, which means that they have to act when the client's best interests. So if they are a regulated profession with fiduciary duty, should they propose alternatives? Should they learn more of things that benefit and is of best interest to their clients? In this case, physicians who have very, very different financial and accounting needs.
one last concrete example that I want to dive into. And that is the question of dividend versus taking a salary from your corporation. And I know that many accountants, and it seems like I'm really pounding on the accountants right now, but not just the accountants, many financial planners are recommending dividends only from their corporation. And that is mainly to save on the fees that are going to the Canadian pension plan, which equals to about $6,000 to $7,000 a year. And the argument is that if they take that $6,000 to $7,000 a year and you invest it in the market, compounding at 10%, that is a significant amount of money at the end of the day and at retirement. And so that is the argument for taking a dividend-only income from your corporation as opposed to a salary income from your corporation. But one must realize that if we're taking dividend-only as income, then there is no T4 associated with your income. So what are the pros of dividend-only income? What are the cons of dividend-only income? What are the pros of a T4 income? And what are the cons of a T4 income? I think what is most important is, well, what are the alternatives? What are the options? And more importantly, what are the opportunity costs of not having a T4? Again, what is not said and discussed is probably the most important. If I do not take a T4 income, what are the future opportunities that I cannot access? And if we don't talk about that, then we would never know. And if we don't know what we don't know, how do we make an informed decision? If we talk about options, how about a blended model, both T4 and dividend? At what percentage do I take a salary 40% and 60% dividend? Or reverse, do I take 60% dividend and 40% salary? What are the pros and cons of that? What are the opportunity costs of each of these options? And if I want to use these options, what are the opportunities that I can access in the future? For example, creating a pension plan for both yourself and your family, setting up a RCA account only comes with a T4. And so if one decides to take dividend only, then you realize that you are foregoing the setting up of a pension and the setting up of an RCA. How important is it to you and your family to have a pension plan and to have a retirement plan and to have intergenerational wealth transfer. If those issues are important to you, then taking dividend only is absolutely the wrong choice. But if those things are not important to you or they are fairly important to you, then maybe a blended model is the right choice. And if they are very important to you, 
then there has to be a T4 salary component. And again, if your advisor or your accountant did not explain to you the future opportunities that could be foregone by not taking a T4, how do you feel about your educated decision by doing only dividend? 100% of my physician colleagues and dentist colleagues have an accountant. Less than 1% of us are even aware of private pension plans like IPP, PPP, or CPPP. Less than half a percent of us are aware of the RCA. And why is that? Are our accountants and financial advisors not supposed to talk to us about these concepts? And if they don't talk to us about these concepts because they haven't learned it, they don't bother learning it, they don't care to learn it, then how good is the information shared with us? And how good is our educated decision? And do we actually have informed consent? Again, I repeat, sometimes the most important thing is not what is said, but what is not said. And as you can see in all these concepts, the important things are what were not said by both your accountant and or your financial planner. So if these were not said and these were important, then are they acting in the best interest standard? Or have they fallen to the basic suitability standard? This is something I would like everyone to think about and reflect on and come up with your own decision on whether you are properly informed and educated or not. And if you are not, then you should go out and learn about these concepts as well, which I have been trying to post on my show. And so these concepts of suitability and best interest is really a two-way street. An informed consumer is really the best thing. And we who consume financial solutions need to be properly informed ourselves as well. Caveat emptor, better known as buyer beware. So be really aware of who your advisors and your accountants are. Are they operating on the basic standard or are they operating on the best interest standard and have fiduciary duty to you in mind? I will let you reflect on that. This particular topic of suitability versus best interests is a topic of great controversy when this book came out. It's called Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry, 
A Practical Guide for Canadians. And the author is John J. DeGoey. And it's really aimed at protecting yourself from well-intended but oblivious advisors. And as you can see, the title of the book is not very flattering to advisors. It is needless to say that many advisors in the industry were not very, very friendly back to the author, John DeGoey. Mr. DeGoey had touched on a very sensitive nerve that had been plaguing the financial industry for a long, long time. And needless to say to you guys, the audience, that as physicians, we have a target on our back. And so we are the victims of some of these advisors of the financial industry. And so answering the question of suitability versus best interests is really in our best interest to understand it more. Otherwise, we would always have this bullseye behind our back. In his book, Mr. John Jagoi, in the second chapter, gives the reader some useful questions to ask the financial advisor. How to ensure advisor accountability? This is the question that we are trying to address today. While I have no financial incentive to recommend this book to you, I do strongly recommend that you buy it and read it. Again, the book is called Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry, a practical guide for Canadians, you and I. A very good read and an eye-opener for sure. I do hope that this particular podcast today allows you to reflect on the different topics that we have discussed. And again, I want to reiterate that this is not a podcast to say anything negative about accountants in general. And this is, I hope that people understand that this is not a broad brush against accountants or advisors. There are many good accountants and advisors out there. And so recognize who they are and work with those individuals if you can. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.